Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on uh, Friday mornings on JM and the AM. Today, um, Malcolm Honline, actually for him, it's this afternoon, is in Krakow, Poland, and that is uh, from where he will conduct this conversation on a Friday morning era of Shabbos. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Well, it's great to be back with you after a short uh, hiatus. I spent a wonderful Pesach majestic retreat in Henderson, Nevada, where an, quite a number of JM and AM listeners Woo! were present, so I send out a greeting to all of them. Nice. And uh, came almost immediately then here to Poland for the March of the Living, which took place yesterday with 15,000 participants. We had a whole delegation of UN ambassadors, about 20 of them are here, and 20 more are going to join them in Israel for the Israel 70th. Uh, the president of Poland and the president of Israel were here and the heads of all the services, the chief of staff of the IDF, the head of the uh, Shin Bet, the Mossad, the police, they all came. It was quite a remarkable gathering and event and, of course, overlaid with the tension that currently exists over the proposed legislation or the legislation that was adopted uh, by the Polish government about uh, invoking Polish guilt in the Holocaust. Which I'll ask you about in a moment. You know, Malcolm, you're doing this a long time, and I'm referring to March of the Living, and, and most listeners, I think, at this point are familiar with the program, uh, that it's dominated by young people, uh, plus Jewish leadership, as you indicated, and that it starts in Eastern Europe, ends up in Israel. Yom Atzmut is coming Thursday, of course. Uh, we know the bridge between Yom HaShoah and Yom Atzmut, how critical a time it is in our calendar. Um, any major differences, and I know I didn't give you a chance really to think about this, but I'm so curious, as the number of survivors dwindles, although I did hear this week Israeli radio reported it's still 200,000 in the state of Israel. But as that number gets lower, and now that we're in 2018, and you think back to the early days of March of the Living, I would assume there were always Israeli government officials there. Any major differences between how it's done now and how it was done then? Well, it's much larger. When it started 30 years ago, it was the 750 Israelis and 750 Americans. Now you have people from every country on earth, literally. Uh, you see signs from Mexico, Panama, for a, a delegation from Japan, even Sugihara's uh, relatives came, the man who helped save many Jewish lives. Uh, the, the broad spectrum of people, and you see the presence of many adults, about 4,000 adults who came this year as well, uh, and, and uh, also the participation of many non-Jews from around the world. And I saw the uh, incredible representation from around the world, Jew and non-Jew alike, 
in the big celebration is similar to what you just described in terms of March of the Living and those in Eastern Europe. I, I would assume that a lot of this is the continued identification, pridefully, of both Jew and non-Jew alike with the state of Israel. We always talk about how Israel is attracting, whether it's investment or, or spiritual partners around the world who are just gravitating toward Israel. I would assume this is part of it. Absolutely. The, the, the uh, ubiquitous presence of Israeli flags, I mean, uh, the young people wearing them and carrying them, the link is so clear in the fact that the vast majority will go on to Israel from here. Uh, I even brought, in addition to John Batchelor of uh, ABC and Monica, Fox, Monica Crowley of Fox News and several other people, I guess, from uh, the Arab world, and the, the fact that they, too, begin to relate to it, that the minister, former minister of justice of, of Saudi Arabia, we are honoring on April 25th at the, in, in New York at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, and honoring Muslims who saved Jews during World War II, a story that has not been told. But they begin to identify now, now that they're able to get the information and countries are talking about it. And Ali C. wrote that to the Holocaust Museum, that, and he's the head of the Muslim World League now, that to be a Holocaust denier is anti-Islam, that the Muslim world has to face up to what happened there and to learn about it. And the, 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 the I mean, it's a radical change in many regards, but as people confront the growing divisiveness and partisanship and the extremism that we see, even in our own country, uh, the lessons that have become all the more important. Some of the statements that you just indicated they're making from the Arab world, uh, they would have. They would have had fear of, fr frankly, you know, of, <laughs> of, of. Uh, they would. They would have feared for their own lives in the past if they would have made statements like that. It's incredible how different it is and how they feel that the atmosphere is such that they can go ahead and say those things publicly. King of Morocco was the first to do this when he supported the Aladdin Project, which is uh, Holocaust education. And uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's true universally in the Arab world. And even those who come out are still subject to attack and criticism for uh, for doing so. But overall, I would say that the, that there is change, and there is a growing uh, recognition of, of the need to address and to, to not to dismiss what happened, and the. Um, you know, there, it's a gradual change. It's not something that's immediate. And I'm not, you know, the anti-Semitism and the anti-Israel propaganda and much of the Arab world continues in Muslim world. But it'll be a gradual process, and we have to try and encourage the positive and address the negative in the equally strong terms. And finally, as you sit in Krakow, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, it seems that there's really no resolution yet regarding this whole Polish Holocaust law situation. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, I would say that's accurate. That uh, I mean, a lot of people grandstanding on this issue, but the fact is that yesterday the Polish president spoke. He gave it very forceful, and he is a very, uh, considered a great friend of the Jewish community here and of Israel. Uh, the president of Israel, though, gave a very forceful address in which he spoke about the culpability of Europeans and, and others, whether in France and uh, Holland, Belgium, other countries, those who were, who were complicit in the murder of Jews, and he said, and Poles too, just they recognized the fact that there were you know, 6,700 uh, Polish people who were recognized as righteous amongst the nations and for their role in having saved Jews more than in any other country. Uh, but more Jews were killed here than in any other country as well. And to, to talk about 
what happened in Kilchid, what happened in other places where even Jews were turning after the war, so you couldn't blame it on the Germans, were subject to killing and, and, um, and being chased out and, um, the, and terrible circumstances. So the, the, this is casting a cloud over everything because the, the president, when he signed the law, referred it right away to the Constitutional Court. And he did make comments about the hope that the court would limit it or, or address it because he did not support it. Uh, the, the problem is now that this would criminalize any reference to Polish complicity. Uh, it is one thing to say that the camps were not Polish camps, but these were Nazi camps. Right. But it's another thing to say that the Poles didn't have any play role in it. By the way, does that include non-Polish citizens who would say uh, make statements like that inside Poland? Absolutely. Wow. Uh, so visitors and tour guides. I think you once pointed this out to us, actually, in this whole process, that visitors and tour guides right. would, would be right, would be subject to uh, uh, to have um, uh, violated the law. Um, all right. Uh, we, we will obviously we'll get to Syria. We'll get to Iran. But l- let's start with Gaza. because. And I saw that you just posted a uh, uh, the Lior Ackerman article from the Jerusalem Post, which is actually entitled The Next Israeli War in Gaza. And you can imagine you don't have to imagine you're you're in the category of people who really care about those in the IDF, we know how scary uh, the war of 2014 was. Are we on the verge of war uh, in Gaza? I, I don't know whether we're on the verge of a war. I think we are in a war, uh, and it's been an ongoing war. It just uh, uh, periodically flares up. But we know that the, the ongoing efforts of Hamas, their threats, are matched also by the development of weapons, by the fact that they put IEDs on the roads, that they have fired, they've shot rockets, that they are also improving the, the quality, the guidance systems, the, the payloads of the rockets that they have, and building tunnels. I mean, these are all part of an ongoing war which they declare and they say the goal is to take over Israel, to destroy Israel. So the you know the the current stage is just an escalated version of what we what Israel's been going through, and now they found that this is a great PR tool. So they are uh, engaging in this uh, what they call uh, I guess civil disobedience and and protests, but they're not peaceful protests. You can see the pictures of the guys even today trying to dare down the fence. That their goal is to have a mass infiltration, and the fence itself was not built to hold back populations. It's a it's a detection system. System, an early warning system of, of people trying to cross. And you have a long border. You have thousands of Israelis living within a short distance of the border. So Israel's obligated to do what it can and what it must to, to prevent infiltration of the borders. It's a challenge of its sovereignty and its security. The, the Palestinians, the Gazans, uh, have seen how the world reacts and doesn't tell the story that the vast majority of those who have been killed were, were Hamas, identified as Hamas already uh, operatives, that they brought out their people, uh, people who were on their payroll, uh, and forced their families to, that the turnouts were lower than what they expected. But now it's gaining momentum where young people come and then they throw stones and they burn tires and they do other things that uh, and at times uh, have shot. I think that the Hamas now realize that that's not a good thing because it gives uh, Israel greater justification. So they are are limiting it. Today was supposed to be Molotov, Molotov cocktail day, where they were going to throw Molotov cocktails. But instead, uh, they, it was called flag burning day, because that, of course, is much more appealing to the to Western reporters and reporters generally. And so they burnt a number of Israeli flags, but but. The violence that's involved and the ultimate uh, escalation of this t- 
Day, as they call it, Israel Independence Day, right. uh, is just portends more danger for the future. So I'm going to uh, adjust my question. We know four years ago Israel felt at the time the only way to quell all of this, certainly the rocket attacks, was with a uh, full-blown ground ground offensive. Are we heading toward, or are we on the verge of that, a full-blown uh, ground offensive against the enemy? We will if Israel finds itself in a position where it's the only answer. It's not something Israel wants to do. Nobody wants an all-out war right now, I don't think. Uh, but for, for right now, for the uh, for the Gazans and the, and the Hamas and everybody, they're reaping the benefits of what they consider a PR uh, campaign victory. And for Israel, nothing that it does ever gets a fair shake or, or they're always put on the defensive and being criticized. Uh, when in fact, the true story doesn't get out about what, what is happening and how they put children and women up front, etc. So um, uh, the, the, a full-scale response will only come if Israel's security is threatened and, and dictates that it's necessary. What do you think? Speaking of uh, impressions, uh, world impressions of what's going on there. What do you think of this video that everyone's making a big deal about? Uh, Israeli soldiers reveling in taking out a uh, member of the enemy. Soldiers under tense situations often do things that are not smart or responsible. This obviously was criticized by uh, Israeli officials, and action was taken against some of those involved. But, you know, these are young guys in a very difficult situation. When you face, uh, and, and remember, when they burn the tires, you virtually can't see anything because this black, acrid smoke covers the whole area. It's unhealthy, amongst other things, but it's it's also a grave security threat. They know that at any moment people could try to rush the, the barrier, the, the fences that they have there. So you got to put yourself in their circumstances, too, uh, about what... what tensions they're constantly under when your assignment and goal is to eradicate the enemy and you're successful at your assignment or goal i would think human nature might call for even under those circumstances might call for i don't know slight joyfulness let's put it that way and i and i no, we never but israel and israeli soldiers never rejoiced in the killing of the enemy opposite they they we've always regretted it they've always expressed uh, remorse that they're put in the position of having to kill Golda Meir, you know, said that they, 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 the one thing they could never forgive is that, that they taught the kids how to kill and that made the uh, Israeli soldiers kill. And it goes against the Jewish nature and it goes against our values. And uh, IDF trains for that. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen how the, they exercise restraint that is superhuman. And it's true here, too. I mean, what country in the world would tolerate this? Can you imagine if they lined up on the Mexican or Canadian borders or if, if uh, in any other place that people lined up on a border and burned tires and threatened to cross and, and dug tunnels underneath and launched rockets across the border? They wouldn't tolerate it for one day. Yeah, that's for sure. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He's in Krakow, Poland. He spend, spent Yom HaShoah in Eastern Europe. He is heading to Israel for Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel 70 is this coming Thursday. Let's remember that we have the ability to celebrate. We are not only about mourning and about recognizing sad occasions and sad anniversaries. We as a people do have 
The ability to celebrate, and this coming Thursday deserves a major celebration. And Malcolm will be there on the spot, and we'll be here trying to give the spirit of the day uh, to our listeners around the world as Israel uh, celebrates its 70th anniversary um, of its day of independence. A very, very significant day, and I hope everybody in their own way, whatever way it is, acknowledges how important a day is. It really is. All right, Malcolm, let's get to um, uh, the strike on, on Syria. Um, so Israel decided that there was a reason uh, that they they had to, in fact, um, a, a strike in, in uh, Syria. Was it because those Iranian officials, those Iranian representatives were there and they weren't happy with uh, with what they were plotting in Syria for Israel? Well, I don't know that Israel did it, and nobody has confirmed that Israel has carried out the attack. <clears throat> so it's somewhat speculative at this point to say that, that you know, who is responsible. Israel would have had every good reason to carry out the attack. It's a place that was attacked before. We know that it's a staging ground. We know IRGC was there, uh, Iran Revolutionary Guard officials, and that Iran is increasing its presence through the militias and through directly and with Hezbollah. So Israel's preemptive moves are, are to, usually to prevent the stockpiling of weapons or the transfer of weapons that would go to Hezbollah and to try, and, and they've repeatedly said that they will not allow Iran to pose a threat by establishing bases and, and operational bases close to its border. Um, Israel Monday appeared to have escalated its shadow war in Syria against Iran with a pre-dawn airstrike against a military base that coordinates Iranian-backed militias, killing four Iranian military advisors. Now, I'm not you know, saying that we should believe everything we read in these major news outlets, but uh, but certainly those who report the news assumed it was Israel. Israeli officials, as you just indicated, declined to confirm or deny that Israel had conducted the airstrike. It followed a vow by President Trump to respond to an apparent chemical weapons attack by the Syrian government near Damascus on Saturday. Uh, I mean, I know that there's <laughs> it's impossible to get into the mind of Assad, but I, I mean... He had to understand and certainly from past experience had to know that a chemical attack is going to, you know, increase the ire of leadership and, and, you know, the people around the world. I mean, we see the reaction, the United States, France, England, never a reaction like this to what's going on in Syria until after this chemical weapon attack. Uh, what do you think the circumstances were that uh, encouraged him to go ahead and do this? Because he's gotten away with it. He's used chemical weapons many times, uh, often without a response. We've had, we had a response once, and uh, actually it's a provocation. It's a test of the West. And, um, uh, you know, whether it was an act of desperation, whether it's a rogue operation, you know, we don't know what the internal machinations, but to use chemical weapons is not so easy. And uh, to people say that, you know, some element did it on its own, is probably not so credible. So I think that, that they made a decision that they wanted to finish and, and be able to close in on Guta, the rest of the resistance in Guta, as they did before. And uh, I think the president's response, that of the French and British backing him, is very important. You cannot allow, and especially as after visiting Auschwitz yesterday, 
you can't allow countries and and uh, to engage in this kind of barbaric behavior if you don't stop it. It spreads. It will be increased. It will be used against others. It, it is a. Uh, I mean, it could be used across Israel's border. Then it can be used in other uh, conflicts. And and if the United Nations and others don't find the res- resolve to act decisively then the United States and Britain and France have an obligation to do so. This can't be allowed to, to, to happen and and go unresponded. And the President of the United States made that clear, that he's ready to strike if necessary, right? Yeah, so the problem is that, that we, we gave it a lot of advance warning and um, uh, planes to, to Cyprus and um, submarines supposedly to the region. France uh, will deploy from France, but uh, also... Uh, we have resources in uh, in Qatar. We have resources in other places in the region uh, that could be used. So you could fire from well off of the shores of of Syria from the aircraft carrier from from the destroyers, others that are loaded with uh, rockets, and do tremendous amount of damage and be outside of the air defense system that the very sophisticated one that Russia has and they have warned that they would be it would be deployed that they would shoot down planes that they would take other kind of measures um the uh did the Iranians get a message from Israel when they struck in Syria did they get a message that uh, that Israeli um uh, aircraft can get in there undetected did they get a message that they're willing to strike anywhere if necessary I think that the message uh, that they've gotten on numerous occasions, including perhaps Israeli flags penetrating Iranian airspace, Israeli planes, uh, according to some reports, we don't know, it's not confirmed, but there have been numerous ways that Israel has sent very strong messages about its capabilities and capacities. Uh, And if you notice that there was no... uh, uh, retaliatory strike. They keep saying we're going to do it in our time and things, but the fact is that they haven't. And I think the the, the Israel sent a very strong message uh, with that attack, and also that that despite the presence of the the Russian uh, anti aircraft systems, the very sophisticated ones and less sophisticated ones, that they are able to penetrate and reach the targets. Is there an American? Is there a U.S. Uh, military presence in Syria? Sure. Does that put we them? Still, remember, he was going to withdraw the troops, uh, President Trump, and then decided not to, which is very important. I think uh, abandoning Syria now would be a huge mistake. We should be helping the Kurds. We should be helping others. Um, I think Turkey is still advancing at this time and fighting the Kurds and taking advantage, perhaps, of this lull. But so, that, so, based, uh, so based most on- aircraft, by the way, don't fly now. The whole region, it's a huge area. Uh, covering Cyprus and other areas, Lebanon, where no commercial aircraft are flying, and warplanes are reluctant to fly because they think that if it's going to be an attack, they could be mistaken and shot down. I'm just wondering if true presence in Syria might discourage the President of the United States from taking action. Like, I wonder if that's a factor or not. No. The, the, our, our troops are in very specific areas, engaged in a very specific mission against ISIS and those things that, that would not be a risk to our troops. But why why has the uh, Iranian economy collapsed even further this week to the degree that it has? Because of what's happening you know, militarily and, and, and the strikes in Syria, or one has nothing to do with the other? 
well, everything is related, but but it's primarily because it was all a fiction. And I, I spoke about this many times on the show that the the truth about the economy is not coming out because you see a relatively prosperous situation in Tehran, where the IRGC and the, and Khamenei uh, they control forty percent of the economy. So the money that came in, one hundred fifty billion dollars, did not go to the benefit of the people. Uh, all of the cash we sent, we know that when you send pallets of cash. It's going to go, that's the, that's the fuel for terrorism. And they gave money to Hezbollah, Hamas, and their expansionist activities, building bases, doing other things, threatening other governments. But nothing benefited the people, and the economy continues to deteriorate. And we have sanctions on Iran. And it shows that sanctions really work, and we should be increasing the sanctions. There are new ones being added periodically, not just against Russia, but against Iran. And, and we have to strengthen them. I think the negotiations with the British and French and others about increased sanctions and how to fix um, the uh, JCPOA, the Iran deal, the president made clear that he was prepared to pull out. But what I hear is that they are trying to negotiate the language and stay in at this time. If that can't be done, then, of course, they will pull out and and we don't know what the consequences will, will be, what Iran will do, what others will do. But the the fact is that the sanctions dissuade companies because if they have to make a choice between dealing with Iran or dealing with the United States, nobody has to consider that for more than 10 seconds. And But if it, with the Iranian economy then the way it is, as you just described it, I would think it's much more difficult for them to fund their satellites, you know, the, the different tentacles they have in the Middle East, whether it be Hamas, Hezbollah, etc. I mean, I, I would guess all those efforts suffer when there's no cash available, right? Yes, but they, they still have the oil income, even though, you know, the the supply is very great right now, but it's beginning to come down. The price of oil has gone up, which means they make more money. Uh, they still have an economy, and they're still making these deals. But as I said if, a long time ago, just because they talk about making a deal doesn't mean that it actually gets consummated and they actually have the money uh, to pay for it. They're trying to buy planes. They're trying to buy uh, from Boeing included, uh, and hopefully these deals will not be uh, allowed to go through because it only will uh, add to their strength. They use civilian aircraft for military purposes, and everything is, as you said, interrelated. There's no separation. And we have seen the manifestations, the demonstrations that go on inside Iran, but they hardly get reported because people, unemployment, real unemployment, not what they say, but in, in amongst young people, it's about 40%. And that is a sign of a very weak economy. U.N. reaction to the chemical uh, uh, attack in Syria. Did Nikki Haley and others get what they wanted out of the Security Council? Nobody got what they wanted. The Russians veto U.S. efforts, U.S. veto Russians' efforts. And in the meantime, the U.N. proved itself uh, um, paralyzed in, in terms of taking some sort of a concrete action. Uh, it's it's regrettable because uh, this should this should be such uh, a consensus issue, and that the measures the United States proposed should have been enacted. Did Russia essentially warn the U.S. to stay out of Syria? Well, they have said it in the past, but they what they essentially said is that we're going to stand by our Syrian ally and we're not going to allow. Them. And and he wants to project the message that Syria that Russia stands by its friends and that they but are did, a reliable ally. The United there, States has improved its image in that regard somewhat. But was there but, but was know, there a direct Putin, was there a di- was there a direct or veiled warning by Russia to the U.S. to stay at? Or would you call that? The I, fact, I don't know. Would you call that a veiled warning? 
that he, that he got out there publicly uh, mentioned how he supports the Syrian administration? I don't think it's a warning. To, they, they wouldn't dare warn the U.S. to say that they don't have interests in in Syria. They have in the past warned about the uh, you know the the actions of the United States and uh, the interests. But Russia is not actually that actively engaged. It is it is pursuing its interests. One of its interests is to keep Assad in power, and once that is consolidated, which is rapidly happening. I hope that the interest between Russia and Iran and, and Iran will, for instance, come into clash, more open clash, and, and that and their interests vis-a-vis Turkey. Assad has attacked Turkey publicly and repeatedly because of its actions in the south, and they wanted they demanded that they withdraw their troops. So there's a lot of internal divisions that could come up. United States presence and footprint there is very limited. Um, do you think there was communication between Russia and Israel, or again, as long as he's pursuing his own interests, it's irrelevant to him whether Israel decides to strike Syria or not? Uh, no, I understand that there was a talk this week between the Prime Minister and uh, Mr. Putin, and uh, there, I think there are ongoing discussions um, you, about the situation. Do you, do you think you would call you would categorize the two of them as being on the same page? Well, obviously not, because the United States, Israel did not want to see Assad remain in power, or at least initially. Now, yeah, but I'm sa- an alternative. I, when, when I say uh, on this, when I say on the same page, I mean is Russia willing to ignore when Israel decides they've got to take out certain Iranian outposts in Syria? Well, the, the, uh, there was differences of opinion over why Israel didn't give advance notice and uh, sufficient notice, but it is risky to do that because then the Russians can give notice to the Syrians. Yeah. Uh, there were other issues that came up, uh, but th- there is ongoing discussion. And obviously, um, Russia did not retaliate, and Russia didn't fire any aircraft um, when Israel did what it did, if it did it. <laughs> if it did, Iranian Iranian official yesterday said that uh, if Israel continues this type of activity, they're willing to not willing to, they're ready to, and they're threatening to destroy Tel Aviv and Haifa. Tel Aviv and Haifa will be destroyed. Um, I mean, I know that Israel takes Iranian threats very seriously, and you've told us many, many times. Make sure to always take your enemies' threats seriously. But I guess at this time, all Israel is concerned about is if, if, if Iran in Syria or anywhere else sets up outposts that eventually could be dangerous to Israel, they will act to make sure to take them out. Right. I mean, that's no different than Israeli policy, I, I would guess, has always been. Right. Right. And I think uh, the more boisterous the threats get, sometimes it tells you how limited their capacity is uh, on the part of Iranians. This is part of their tactic. Again, take it seriously because they have tremendous capacity still. But Israel, I think that they will not take Israel's retaliatory capacity in uh, uh, anything less than as a very serious and direct threat to the continued existence of this regime in Iran. Mm. So I, I think Iran has a lot of respect for what Israel could do could potentially do to its interests. Uh, and that's why they act, act through proxies, why they do it through Lebanon, they do it through Syria, they use Hezbollah, they use all sorts of second parties, Hamas, um, to to attack Israel because they don't want to be struck directly. But Israel has sent clearly the message that they would hold them to account for whatever happens. How many times in the last few days have you thought about uh, how just a very, very short time ago Jews were in a situation where they, at knife point and gun point and machine gun point, were taken by the enemy and murdered uh, uh, wantonly. 
And now, when an entire country threatens the existence of Jewish people, we have the IDF and we have our own intelligence and we have a flourishing Israel, economically and otherwise, to be there on behalf of the Jewish people. I thought about it every step on the walk from in Auschwitz and from Auschwitz to Birkenau. When you think about those who had walked there 75 years ago, the slave labor, the, the torturous existence, the, let alone the, the selection place where people were sent to their deaths and, and, and as many as 30,000 in a day, but the, the huge numbers, it's, it's astonishing when you think about it. And that, that today in the same place, you see young guys in their Israeli military uniforms and police uniforms and others walking proudly, defiantly. You see the people lining the streets, Poles included, cheering and, and, and saluting them. And you see the young people coming from all over the world carrying flags. And many of the people look at them, the Poles, and say, where do you come from? And we thought you were destroyed. And you see the resilience, the rebirth, and the centrality of Israel is so clear. It's so much in, your, in, 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 in no one, I don't care where they are on the political spectrum, cannot feel that impact and understand the importance in that context. A short time ago, a soldier would say to a Jew, I'm going to kill you, and would pull a trigger and do so. Now an entire country, representing tens or even hundreds of millions of people, says to the Jews, I'm going to kill you, and Israel basically says, that's what you think, and gets out there and does what is necessary to protect Jews all around the world, not just Jews in Israel, but Jews around the world. That's why, by the way, these stupid squabbles about who's lighting torches on Yom Atzmud and who's speaking when. I mean, you know, at some point, I wish I wish Jewish leadership and Israeli leadership would just sit back and and enjoy the attitude that you just described. And thank God that we're in the position that we are in. No matter who's giving speeches, and no matter who's holding torches, and no matter who's lighting torches, and who's, no matter who's doing what at the Yom Atzmud ceremonies in Israel, it, it was a shame that that became a, pub, a public issue, wasn't it? Well, I think it's mishandling by Israeli officials. I don't think there's anything to do with Jewish leadership. I think it's uh, there's incompetence and, and uh, you know, whether intentional or not, I don't think it was intentional in the most part, uh, but it certainly was bungled. So I, don't, I think that's a separate issue. I do think the announcements and decisions of people not to stand in moment of silence on Yom HaZikaron or on Yom HaShoah is a disgrace and that anybody who does it should be held to account, that even a minister could say in any context, there's no excuse for that. That this is a collect, this was a collective threat against the Jewish people, against all Jews, regardless of where, who where they came from and who they are. And to this provocative stance has no justification. I, can't, I don't, cannot see and have not heard anyone who can in any way justify the fact that, that, that you not stand in honor and, and in memory of those who sacrificed their lives, either those who were killed in Yom Shoah or those on, on uh, Yom Karon, the 23,000 from every sector of the Jewish people, every community that were killed by terrorists and in fighting to defend the state of Israel. That, I think, is a disgrace where all of us have to have a voice. The lighting of the candles is, is frankly, just to me, well, if that's the case. You have tremendous influence when it comes to our rabbinic leaders around the world. I would hope you'd be able to uh, convey this message to them uh, because I don't know if they would take the same public stand you just took. 
I understand, but I think that responsible leadership would not say you can do what you want as an individual, but you cannot call people not to do it. Right. I think that that that's the distinction I'm making. Understood. Understood. Um, I, I'm jealous. Uh, you'll be there for Israel 70. We'll do our best to uh, convey all of this to our listeners around the world. You've always said it. I, I've always felt it and said it, but you've had a way to really emphasize it in ways that now I am duplicating. Uh, and that is that we have a unique ability <laughs> as a Jewish people, especially in the last 2000 years, uh, to mourn the, uh, the terrible tragedies. But sometimes we find it difficult to celebrate. I know you agree with me that everybody, as you just pointed out uh, regarding the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the sirens and how you'd like everyone to participate in a proper fashion, I'm sure you encourage everybody to in some way, whatever way they wish, acknowledge how incredible uh, the upcoming 70th anniversary of the State of Israel is. Come spend one day in Auschwitz and they'll appreciate what it means to have an independent Jewish state that can defend Jews that brought Jews home from Russia, Ethiopia, Iran, Yemen, Syria, Ethiopia, and and anyone, and that the, the pledge of never again is fulfilled by the very existence of the state of Israel and the capacity to be able to reach out and make sure that Jews are never alone and never neglected and not subject to the whims of the world. When you have an independent Jewish state, a miraculous Jewish state, anybody who doesn't see the miracles of Israel is blind. Yeah, I look forward to more of these messages a week from today. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Uh, enjoy, quote unquote, enjoy Eastern Europe, and we'll speak again next week. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.